Hello and welcome to another Squiggly Animation podcast. In this episode, we welcome Weekend's director, Trevor Jimenez. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, another Squiggly Animation podcast. I'm Ben Mitchell, and I'm joined by Steve Henderson. How are you, Steve? I'm very well, thank you very much, Ben. How are you? Well, I mean, I'm doing my level best to hold it together. Mm. As you know, it's rare that we actually get serious on the podcast, but as you know, it's a rough time to be a man in his 30s. What with the redesign of She-Ra. <laughs> fuck, fuck, what the fuck is wrong with these people? And why do they all look like me? <laughs> well, there's nothing that can be done for that, Ben, I'm afraid. <laughs> More crucially, though, who in the last 35 years has mentioned She-Ra once? <laughs> well, uh, well, we've mentioned it quite a few times just now. For a couple of years in the 90s, my uncle had a girlfriend called She-Ra... I think spelled with an I. No, he didn't. And we sort of made fun of her for that as kids, because the days were long in the uh, pre-Wi-Fi era of Summers at the Lake. That's the last time I remember a memory of the show, <laughs> like 1993. And it was a memory of a show that stunk! <laughs> Yo, it, that sentence, my uncle had a girlfriend called She-Ra, it's the most, if you'd have told me that in the playground, that's the most bullshit sentence i've ever heard in my entire life it's an amazingly consistent with every story i have about my uncle <laughs> it's it's absolutely mad isn't it the fact that this show uh, can come back and the most vocal people who come on are the ones that don't like it but they are as you say they're in their 30s they're pushing 40 they barely remember a show that I mean I, I I don't suppose anyone's sort of watching the DVDs or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know this show has been brought back for nostalgia purposes, but what's happened now is nostalgia has been taken over by this absurd kind of group of people, the type of people that want to remake Star Wars because they didn't like the didn't like the new one. They're always the most vocal. Yeah. Do you remember when you used to go to the cinemas watch a film? And then, like, not be overly impressed with it. And then just get on with the rest of your fucking life. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it can be... There's a, there can be a certain joy from mass criticism. I mean, I think that, you know, when cynicism has its place in, you know, comedy or humorist cultural analyses, Charlie Brooker, people like that, I think maybe some of these people think that they're, ju they're just being really witty. <laughs> Or, you know, I mean, you and me certainly are no stranger to complaining about, you know, the world of, of cartoons. <laughs> but when we do it, it's cute, first of all. Absolutely. But also there is more of a kind of context and a justification for it. We've got a podcast to fill. Other than <laughs> the toy isn't f***able enough. <laughs> which seems to be... What do you think's going to happen if they redesigned her with bigger boobs? She'd come over and bang you? <laughs> She's still a drawing. <laughs> Somebody's probably wanting some sort of Indian in the cupboard style. <laughs> it's absurd, isn't it? This sort of 
bring it back, bring it back. Oh, you should bring, you should bring Transformers back. You should bring Transformers back. You should bring Turtles back. You should bring Turtles back. Not like that. Do it to my exact internal specifications. Yes, yeah. The um, the Thundercats was redesigned recently as well. I say recently. This is now really old news, but the controversy around that was was kicking off, and the show has been brought back as a comedy show. Because let's be honest, any early eighties animated cartoon, when redesigned, can be cannot be anything else. It's Thundercats. It's ridiculous. So bring it back as a comedy show. Let's all have a laugh. Let a new generation enjoy it. Yeah? yeah. That's what, you know, you've got the old Thundercats. The point of that was uh, that people were complaining about it, going, ah, this is this is nothing like the original Thundercats. There's no drama. There's no all those kinds of stuff. But a couple of years prior to uh, this new redesign, Thundercats was brought back in a very gritty, more adult animated way. And nobody watched it. Well, I certainly feel like we dropped the ball. <laughs> Not talking about the gritty Thundercats reboot. <laughs> was it even any good? Oh, it was. It, I think it was pre-podcast. I think it was like 2011 or something like that. Oh, okay. So, so we're, we're fine. For you? Yeah. <laughs> another another good old dodge. <laughs> the I mean, the point you make, I think, yeah, you can take a lot of these properties, give them a little shot in the arm. If if you think it works as a comedy, give that a whirl. And it seemed like it did with Thundercats. I thought those designs... I probably won't watch it, but I thought that was fine. The thing is, and this is an inconvenient truth, and some will say it's an opinion, it's a truth. I said earlier that Shira kind of stunk. They all stunk. Oh, to high heaven. They were all bad shows. We were all just five. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to do income tax. You didn't have to earn a crust. You didn't have to support a family. Some of you probably were still sucking your thumbs on occasion, picking your nose when you thought no one was looking. That was the age where it was okay to have an opinion on Shira. <laughs> the the moment that you looked down and you saw any kind of grass on the field, then shut the <laughs> fuck up about anything to do with filmation. Yeah. Move on to the the grown-up subjects like when did the Simpsons go bad? <laughs> Important cultural critiques. I've got one memory of She-Ra. I can't name any of the characters apart from She-Ra. If the show was called anything but She-Ra, I would have no idea what she was called. Mm-hmm. But my memory of She-Ra is going to uh, Lindsay and David's house, knocking on the door, uh, and David could come out to play, but Lindsay couldn't because she was watching She-Ra, and we turned to each other and went, She-Ra! That's rubbish, and then ran off on our bikes. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! You showed them. We certainly did. I think we've moved already to the point where the criticisms of the criticisms have already outweighed the, you know, original criticisms. So it's it's given this new Shira a kind of air of actually, you know, it's quite good and interesting, and the perceived androgyny of the character. Yeah, I got nothing on that. It it looks it looks fine. It's a nice drawing. Again, I don't think I'll watch it unless you know word gets around that it's like this amazing thing. But uh, I'm not really opposed to like giving old things a second shot. I think half of what everything is is a version of an older thing. Yeah, you know, and sometimes they come together really well. I thought uh, the new Roseanne was really promising until the actual Roseanne <laughs> couldn't keep her f-ing tweeting fingers strapped down. <laughs> but that had promise. I mean, it did all I hoped it would do, which was erase and rewind 
the last season, which was dreadful. Mm. A few years before, Red Dwarf did the exact same thing. They brought that back, and they basically just said, oh, you know how shit it got? We'll just forget all those episodes. Yeah. And we'll just move on, and it does, don't ask questions about where did that character go, or where did this character go? Let's just go back to the formula. Yeah. Like Principal Tamzanian, or whatever that storyline was in The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. All, uh, season 9 of Red Dwarf didn't happen. Let's not... Let's let's forget all about that. Yeah, yeah. It's still not like every episode is amazing, but I could quite happily watch a new Red Dwarf just because it feels kind of comfortable. Yeah. So sometimes shows will go back to a formula, sometimes try something new, and that's fine too. As I was, you know, unable to shut up about all of last year, like how overjoyed I was with what David Lynch did with the new Twin Peaks. He basically just made a a new David Lynch movie that happened to have some characters from Twin Peaks in it. Mm. And people who really liked the old Twin Peaks, like, like, on Facebook were really, like, they were very much, like, they redesigned <laughs> the character. <laughs> Where's the boobs? The thing is, I could understand why people would be, like, thrown by that if they if they had just liked the old show but didn't really know what David Lynch was all about. I always actually had an issue with the old show because it wasn't David Lynchy enough, so hmm. this was, like, a gift, but, like, to me... And I was like looking around like, oh my god, this is what I always hoped it would be. Everyone must be so pissed off. <laughs> it was a worthwhile, I think, uh, endeavor, as far as reboots go, because it was almost subverting what the concept of nostalgia is, and being quite self-aware about it as well. I don't know whether or not that's a necessary degree of artistic contortion if you were going to reboot a cartoon series. But mixing it up is is fine, I'm sure, you know, like, uh, let's say in this version, April O'Neil's a teenager, maybe that will open up something. I don't know if that did, I just remember that being a change. Uh, I I think he eventually backtracked the, uh, was it Michael Bay was going to make them aliens, the Ninja Turtles? Yeah. And then yeah. the flack he got from that, he, he backed out of that. But maybe that would have, if they were some kind of turtly alien, would it have really ruined it they could have maybe done something different um, well, there's been so many different versions of the turtles the turtles is is one of those examples i mean we're looking at she-ra and there's been like you know one or two versions of she-ra uh, there's been three or four versions of thundercats including the new one uh ducktales there's two versions of ducktales three if you include the comic because with turtles there's been so many iterations of Turtles. It's like every five years they're contractually obliged to make a new Turtle series. It's like those um, really dreadful films that companies make to keep on or hold of the rights of like a superhero character. They'll just make a contractually obliged film. Um, if you've ever seen the Captain America film or the Fantastic Four film that I think it was Fox made mm -hmm. just to keep hold of the rights of the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. And it's terrible. But in terms of like the Turtles, there's been so many different versions. Uh, so every generation, every half generation has got their own version. And I'm sure, pretty sure my, my, mine and your versions are the, the original animated series and the Muppets version. Probably like the first and second film. Yeah. And every other bit is crap. But Ninja Turtles, I guess, like it's also it's it's got enough sort of depth to it that you could yeah you could you could do all sorts of things. And they did quite a lot of stuff within each one. Like they would in, in the old comics, they'd go to different dimensions, and there were aliens, and you know, there was Dimension X in the cartoon and things like that. And Laura spotted a hardback sort of collection of the old indie comics I have 
when we were moving some books around. And she's like, does Ninja Turtles have like a mythology, like an origin story? And I'm like, eh, well, they're basically, no, they're just ninja, they're mutants and they're turtles and they do ninja and the bad guys, the shredder. And then as I was saying that, 25 year old mythology <laughs> that I hadn't thought of came spilling out of a cupboard in my head. <laughs> and I was like, but take yourself back to 1950s feudal Japan where Hamato Yoshi <laughs> and Oroko Saki were fighting for the love of one woman. <laughs> it was all there, like, you know, that whole sequence when he tells the story. And, yeah. and then I remembered something I hadn't thought of in years. In the cartoon, Splinter was actually mutated from the guy yeah. who was his owner in the comic. He was a pet rat in the comic that became a big rat, but in the cartoon he was a man who became a rat. Yeah. For whatever reason. That's information that will probably never leave my head. <laughs> Which is kind of chilling, I suppose, when I consider all the actual things I do need to know about, like, adult life. Where's the soft spot on a baby? Yeah. <laughs> I'll wing it. <laughs> yeah. So even within the first few years of it being a thing, they were already changing things up. I don't really know a great deal, I confess, about the original mythology of She-Ra. I guess it was within the same canonical universe as He-Man. Well, the origins uh, of She-Ra is that they were selling uh, He-Man toys like you wouldn't believe. Um, and then they decided they wanted to sell uh, He-Man toys to girls. And so they made a cartoon. What a heartrending story. <laughs> I think I've got a bit of a tear in my eye. That was... Take yourself back to a 1980s executive's <laughs> office. The smell of cigar smoke lingers in the air. <laughs> Last episode was a very uh, yellow submarine-centric episode. Uh, this month being, of course, the 50th anniversary. From what I gather, the uh, anniversary events have been going down well. And uh, it was a lot of fun, sort of revisiting it. Yeah, that, that's always, always a nice excuse. It's one of those films that I've got on the shelf and... You need you need a kind of uh, a nice little build up to watch it. You know, it's not just something you'll just put on, uh, and it's not something I want to stick on in the background when I'm working. I know some people, mm. when they're animating or doing coloring or whatever, like to stick on uh, a TV series or or something just to have on in the background. But I think uh, Yellow Submarine and films of that ilk they deserve your full attention. Absolutely, and I think that Gillian was talking about. Um... Julian Lacey, who had worked on it, when in her interview she was talking about like how certain segments of the film like really show their age and are really rough around the edges, and I I agree, but I also don't think of that as a bad thing necessarily. Like I still think the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds sequence, for example, is very strong. Um, it's obviously you know it, it you are seeing an awful lot of the process in a way that you wouldn't compared to stuff they'd make today. No, I think it's, it's still very charming. Yeah. I did kind of agree with her, her assessment that the script was just, like, nonsense. Yes. But again, wasn't that kind of the point? Like, Yeah. So that was pretty Beatles-oriented, the last podcast. We also did have a bit of a catch-up, because um, uh, you'd just come back from Annecy. So we have some extra podcast that uh, we're going to put in this episode. What a treat. Ooh. Waste not, want not. Uh, so yeah, here's a here's a little uh, squiggly trip to the not too distant past from uh, our record from earlier this month. Yeah, it's Annecy. You weren't there this year, Ben. 
So, um, did they manage to hold it together in my absence? They did. They did. They did a fine job. Good for them, soldiering on. More, more consoling for me. I have to go around patting everyone on the shoulder and saying, "I'm really sorry, Ben's. Uh, he's turned into an academic. He's gone to the Society for Animation Studies, and I promise them that you go next year. So you've got to live up to that now, Ben. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was a fantastic year for Annecy. There was plenty of good stuff going on as well. I had a fine time, Ben. And then my flight was cancelled, and I had a right time of it. But let's not go on about that. Was it cancelled going or, or coming? On the way back, the oh. EasyJet cancelled the flight without telling us why or any reason whatsoever. And we thought, oh, well, it might be might be the ground crew or it might be that there's not enough flights. Nope. There's two flights going to London within 10 minutes of each other, around about the same time our flight would have been going. So, yeah. Uh, but you asked me about animation festivals. Annecy this year, <laughs> it was superb. It was a, it was a good year. Um, we got Aaron to do some talking for the first ever time on one of the live podcasts. So we talk a lot about the films uh, that was going on there as well. Um, So if anyone wants to go to our Facebook page or to uh, one of the articles on the site, the uh, Annecy Summary, I think, is the the best one. You can see me and Aaron trying to uh, jostle with uh, French Wi-Fi because it kept cutting out. So we've got two videos rather than the, the one. Any feature film highlights, per chance? Uh, there's some cracking feature films uh, this year. Uh, Virus Tropical, really nice film. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the squiggly audience that will absolutely love that. Uh, the Incredibles was there as well. That was nice. Uh, that's about it, Ben. Nothing that you worked on. No. I'm joking. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Chuck Steele, absolutely fantastic. I put a review up on the site of Chuck Steele. Uh, Night of the Trampires, which got its uh, world premiere. And um, wow. The atmosphere in that room was absolutely electric. Little blue and purple electric, Ben, just to get you back in there. Just Mm. (laughs) Ghostbusters-style electric. There's quite a lot of green toward the end as well, I dare say. Yes, yes. What a film. Uh, I don't know. I don't suppose you've seen it at like a a crew screening or you've painted all over it, uh, being as you did the special effects. Um, But have you seen the whole thing? Uh, I've, I have seen it all, but not with final music or with um, final voices. Mm. I have an idea of it, and of course I haven't seen it on the big screen. Um, there have been, I think, a couple of crew screenings. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been able to make any of those. It's going to be playing in Montreal, and I've just come back from Montreal <laughs> uh, this month for the Fantasia Festival, so that's good news. It's playing in a London festival, I think, uh, in August. A Fright Fest, isn't it? Yeah, so I'll try and make that one. Fright Fest is like the home, isn't it, for Chuck Steele? It's where he uh, showed the original short film all those years ago. And that's the one where you see the picture with everyone in the masks, the Chuck Steele masks. Oh, yeah. So he's got a particular fondness for Fright Fest, which is nice. It's nice to see it actually returning. The film itself is absolutely wonderful. And it's nice to know that the company has now got a sales agent to actually maybe find a distributor. Because I spoke to a few people, and there was obviously a new story went out that... Um, the film had found a sales agent, and a lot of people have mistaken that for the fact that it had found a distributor, but it has not, and it needs a distributor. So mm. if, if there are any distributors listening to this, then distribute it. It's great. Yeah. There had been one for a while that was being sort of touted, and I guess maybe they backed out of that, mm. but that would have been a good fit. I think that there are comparable distributors out there that would be willing to take a punt on this. 
I, I, I kind of alluded to it in, in my review that the problem with distributors is they'll get one animated film on their books and then they'll think, well, I've got the animated film, you know, because they see animation as a genre, which is really quite a shame if, you know, you're, you're selling a, a children's animated feature and then you're selling Chuck Steele. It doesn't quite equate, you know, you've got to make sure that you're promoting it as the film that it is and not just because it's animated. Yeah. And it's a major problem for distributors is they don't they don't put any effort into actually selling animated films. And it's a problem for the animation industry as well. And, you know, it's it's also not the world's most universally, like, uh, all audiences type film. You know, there's a, a niche quality to it. It's a genre film that may hold things up as well. But I don't know. I think that, I mean, if something like Sausage Party was able to cultivate any whiff of enthusiasm which apparently it did yeah and that was that was that was i was gonna say that was fucking awful yeah it was a type of adult animated film that wasn't being really sort of deep about political issues or emotional issues it was a broad comedy that was sort of pointedly non-pc that is also a pretty apt description of chuck Steele. It's a trickier thing to kind of criticize the comedy of Chuck Steele because it's purposefully archaic. Mm. But the scenarios, I thought, were quite amusing. And I guess in, in some instances, the, it's that tipping point of they're so old school in the 80s that in and of themselves, they become sort of funny again. You know, it comes around. And then there is actually, you know, little bits of more contemporary sort of witty dialogue in there as well. So it's kind of a mishmash. Mm. But, you know, it's like if you watch a film like Tango and Cash, which I, I'm sure was conceived as a rip-roaring, rib-tickler of a film, it's an unwatchably bad film in terms of, like, the quality of the jokes. And I think that was sort of what he was aiming for, you know? Yeah. And then you get a lot of absurdism in there as well. So there's stuff like uh, in Big Trouble in Little China, some stuff in that film that I'm not even sure was meant to be funny but it's hilarious when you watch it you know? yeah yeah yeah. i think it's a it's a really good blend of that i'll also be fascinated to see what people make of some of the subject matter in this age that we're in now i think i think if they don't i mean that was the only criticism i had of the film was that well there are moments in the actual film which I, i'm not going to give any spoilers away but it does lean on on a on on sexism as a as a kind of a joke and there's moments where you feel that you're laughing at Chuck, which is perfectly fine. You know, the bit where he's in the hospital and he talks to the nurse. That's that's basically Sid the Sexist from Viz. Really mm -hmm. funny. And then later on in the film, you feel that the joke has turned and you're, you're laughing with, which doesn't quite lend itself to uh, a more contemporary audience, perhaps. You're saying, like, specifically, like, you're meant to find the sexist jokes funny at a certain point? Yeah. Rather than you, just him funny? Yeah, yeah, you're meant to find right. his, yeah. From what I remember, that, that makes a lot of hmm. sense. I think that it's a character that is meant to kind of... It plays better if he is the fool, even though, of course, he's the hero. Possibly, I mean, of course, he's also Mike Mort's baby, in a way. And so maybe... You know, it's it's funny and it's comedically more successful to make that character 
the unknowing butt of the jokes. And maybe there's almost a kind of temptation to like, okay, let's give him a couple, like, toward the end. Mm. There are some moments that really did make me laugh from just, like, looking at the untreated footage. And there's a scene where a colleague confesses her love for him. And he just does this thing with his face, like, ugh. (laughs) And then I just liked on an animation level. Yes. I mean, I guess that would maybe be, like, an example of, like, laughing with... But it's like, in a way, it was more an appreciation for whoever sculpted that little look of disgust on his face. Yeah. Knowing, of course, that, you know, this, all the animation is, like, really old school, sculpted frame by frame. Mm-hmm. They didn't print out that look of disgust. And here's, here's the thing, that, that speaks to two things. We, we, I don't want anyone listening to this uh, podcast to think that Chuck Steele and Sausage Party are in the same league. Oh, no, absolutely not. Because Chuck Steele is miles above it. And what drives it is Mike Mort's passion and the passion for the project and the passion that every sculptor, animator, artist has put into this film. The team have really made an absolute wonderful film. I mean, I, I compared it the, in, in terms of the, uh, the experience of watching the film. It's like staring into a hairdryer. It's just action-packed and just an absolute thrill from start to finish and yes I'm, I'm picking certain nuanced points where people may not enjoy bits of the script or bits of the dialogue but as an achievement as a as a film it really stands out and it's great to see a new stop-motion company creating some absolutely original stuff it's it's absolutely wonderful there's one thing as well a, a slight complaint that somebody brought up afterwards such Turned around afterwards and went, did anyone else get bullet fatigue? <laughs> and I didn't know it was a thing. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, yeah guns and violence and all that good stuff as well. Yeah. Well, good to hear that it went down well. And uh, yeah, we'll see if uh, that enthusiasm continues, hopefully uh, with some kind of distribution not too long in the, uh, in the future. Yeah, get off your ass, distributors, and... Yeah, buy it. Get it. Get it sold. Lock it up. It's a it's a ready made film. Yeah, it's there. It's ready for you. We've got a we've got an interview with Mike loaded, ready in the in the podcast chamber, ready to go. Get his <laughs> get his film sold so he can play its people. Smashing. Any other uh, major Annecy highlights? I went to a um, a press junket, and I got I got in touch with the press people a little bit too late this year, and so instead of getting a one on one interview with a, a, a quite a famous director. I got a press junket, which is usually okay. It's like a round table. Uh, and if you're part of the press, you've got to make sure you get your questions in there, make sure you get your answer, and that's great. Absolutely fantastic. But it depends on the room on the day, as ever. Have you ever experienced one of these, Ben? Have you ever done a press junket? I've experienced a range, so some certainly have run smoother than others. Hmm. What was the issue here? Well, we've got limited time with this director who let's uh let's call him brad bird okay and he's he's uh, <laughs> so beforehand um the person who's running junk it gets up and says under no circumstances are you allowed to ask two questions one question why is it taking so long to make the incredibles two and the second question is don't ask him to do the voice of edna mode okay so I'm thinking, right, well, I've got four pages of Lasseter questions here. This'll be good. Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but like, yeah. No. And so um, 
he, he comes on and, 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 and makes a start and first person puts a hand up. First question she f***ing asks, why has it taken so long to make Incredibles 2? <laughs> and what do you think Edna Mode would say about it in her voice? Do her voice. Oh, who is that? I love her. <laughs> Please tell me that was someone from us. <laughs> no, it was not. It was not. Oh, uh, she rules. And then... <laughs> and then later on, she asks a question which is pretty innocent enough. And we might play the audio for, for Brad's response to this because it's really good. Uh, she asks... And, and, and literally, we've not seen Incredibles 2 yet. You know, we're about to go to see the screening. So it's weird having this press junket before the screening. And so she asks, when's Incredibles 3 coming out? Mm-hmm. And he lost his shit. He just started jumping up and down on his seat <laughs> and, 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 and going, um, ah, that's like going around a maternity ward and asking people when the next baby's coming out. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Uh, when when she gave that first question, like, did it get a laugh? Like, were people, oh, it, like, was she doing it for the laugh or were people, like, actually, like, horrified that she'd... Oh, no, she, she asked the question and it was like she just didn't listen or that she turned up with no questions. Oh, like she just... Asked it, yeah. Like anyway, like, like, oh, okay. I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask <laughs> those questions that you've just said. Those those two questions. Which let's be honest, why is it taking so long to make Incredibles two? He's been making other films in the meanwhile. You f-ing idiot. Everyone knows why it's taking so long to make Incredibles two. He's been busy. Give him a f-ing break. And two, why don't you do the voice of Edna Mode? Go watch the film. He does the voice of Edna Mode in the film. Well, quite a yeah. lot. This is this is this is like a, a, a press junket for written interviews. Why are you going to get him to do the voice of Edna Mode for your f-ing written article? Oh god, <laughs> so is that going to work? That's a sh- I, th- I thought she'd like done it like to kind of be like f- you to the woman, you know? No, no. I think I think she, I think she did it because she had no questions, and that went in her brain, and she got rid of the bits of information where she knew <laughs> she wasn't allowed to ask it, and replaced it with bits so going. This is a good idea. <laughs> oh, okay. Ah, well. Yeah. Why did it take so long to make the Incredibles 2? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. I just remember just, just being furious, thinking we've literally got like 10 minutes, 15 minutes with these people, and you've just asked the most, the two most ridiculous questions. If it's like multiple yeah. people for 10 minutes, that's, yeah, there's a time and a place, I guess, to, to f*** around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had anything like that. I don't think I've really done like the the mixed junket thing. Sometimes it's like waiting for like to talk to your GP, like you're sitting in the waiting room forever, and your slot comes and goes, yes. and you're like, okay, how I, I do have a f-ing train to catch. How much longer am I going to be looking at these pastries? <laughs> like all, all of us staring at the pastries, none of us wanting to because we're all out of shape and we don't want to, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you know that there's something like a little off where you're like, yeah, so maybe I could talk to this director for ten minutes. And they'd be like, "How about twenty minutes?" And I'm like, "Uh oh, what's wrong with them?" <laughs> like this, you know, this film's a f-ing stinker. If, <laughs> if they're the ones fighting for more time, I have, of course, like unedited. They give you the unedited footage to take home with you to make into a video for your website or whatever, uh, as we have often done. So, of course, we have our, all our unedited junket footage, and I have like the creepiest. I see you giving me the wrap-up signal face. <laughs> it's this, like, kind of half-wink, <laughs> sneery thing. Eh, I gotcha. <laughs> I 
I should find that and make a gif of it. That's it. Or I think at one point I like did like a kind of thumbs up slash like shooting with my pointer finger. <laughs> like, <laughs> I see you, lady. <laughs> You're in good hands. Don't worry, oh. I've got this. I understand how time works. <laughs> it's not all fun and games, listeners. It's not all. It's not all just. A, it's not all pastries. Sometimes they're idiots. Sometimes we're the idiots. The Annecy junkets generally are good. The Cartoon Network one's usually good. Last year we did, it was mainly, um, what was it? Gumball. Yeah. Because they did this big Gumball presentation. And so it was people from different studios who've been working with Gumball. And so we've, all of those interviews, I think, are now up. Like Simon Landry and, and the guys from Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared and Simon Cartwright. That was good, but it was f- boiling. Mm. And it was in this bar with no air conditioning. So everyone is like really sunburned and sweaty in the videos. <laughs> Good interviews, though, if you want to go back and check them out. Mm, that's the one with the lightning as well. I like that one. Oh, that was with the girl. That was the year before. That was the girl who did the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah. Who I really, I have to say, I follow her on Twitter. She's really funny. <laughs> I, you know, from the 10 minutes, I actually sort of met her doing the junket. And I think I had another little chat with her in Captain Pub, like, the night after. But she's, like, not one of these sort of Hollywoody type people. She's pretty, like, deadpan and funny and... A lot of people who kind of like uh, get into like series production or, or animated film production, they kind of immediately drink the Kool Aid a bit. Mm. But no, she's just a funny uh, person to follow. She's like a person. Yeah, like a, a real life human being. <laughs> Her name is Haley Mancini. Uh, I don't know if she still does the Powerpuff Girls. I assume she's involved in some way. So, alas, I wasn't in Annecy this year. Maybe next year. As it turns out, the following week I was in another wonderful land where they all speak French. Quebec, in Montreal, for the Society of Animation Studies Conference. I wasn't really part of it. As it turns out, you can just go to all the talks. I didn't know this. Right. And some very interesting stuff. There was, too. I went to the one last year. Uh, every year it's in a different place. So it was in uh, Padova last year. Easy jet flight for me. I'm not as expensive as you, Ben. Montreal this year. And then next year it's in uh, Portugal, I think. Yeah. Lisbon, I think it's heading towards... Uh, how was Montreal? Uh, it was great. It was mostly clement weather. Uh, lots of people, family and friends to catch up with. Quite a few old squiggly pals as well. Mm. We took a trip to the NFB to probably our last trip uh, to the historic NFB headquarters that have been there for many a decade. I think this time next year they'll have moved to uh, the center of Montreal downtown. They have a new building right near Place des Arts which uh, I got a little look at. And uh, apparently it's going to be a sort of more streamlined operation. They're talking about like more like open plan offices rather than individual offices. Yeah. Just more modern, I guess. The old place was very old school. The nice thing about the old headquarters, which I assume I certainly hope will be part of the modern uh, headquarters, is that they have a lot of displays from films that they've worked on over the years and just sort of general like animation history. And uh, I think all the people we saw who were sort of in working that day are people that we've interviewed before mm. doing really exciting stuff there was um claude cloutier who we interviewed he did a film called carface a few years ago okay his new film looks amazing it's bill plimptony in a sense like he cites bill plimpton as a specific influence but it's definitely more like influenced by the bill plimpton of the your face slash push comes to shove days Rather than the Bill Plimpton of today, which is, of course, the same man, but he, you know, he knocks out so much animation that a lot of his his style is definitely more sort of cartoony and simplified. Yeah. 
than it used to be. He used to do these very fine, elaborate caricature type characters, you know. And now they are definitely sort of more cartoony. I don't know if you saw the thing he's doing now about Donald Trump. They're Trump bites. Yeah. You know, they're still very well drawn. It's just, it's a different beast. And Claude Cloutier had also done Sleeping Betty, I think, about 10 years ago. I think that was another big one of his. So, yeah, his new film, I forget the name. I'm not even sure if I'm meant to say it. Because uh, <laughs> a lot of this stuff, I, can, I have to be kind of vague, I guess. Cause a lot Did of you this... sign an NDA? No, but there was... say everything. <laughs> Tell me everything, Ben. There were some honourable handshakes. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks great. Uh, it will definitely cover yeah. it when it comes out. Uh, Theodore Ushev has a film that's nearly done that he's been working on for ages since before he began and finished Blind Vaisha, uh, which I think was the last film of his we covered. This one, the technique is really quite remarkable. Think Loving Vincent, but with an extra layer of, like, holy shit. As far as the labor that's gone into it, it's uh, it's quite something. And uh, Laurie Malapar Traverse, who did Le Clitoris as a student film, she's now with the NFB, doing a little series of films. Uh, those look really cute. We saw some concepts for that. And some like VR stuff they're working on. It's uh, a nice sort of like final batch, I guess, yeah. that they've got going on over there. So I'm glad that we got to have one last little visit. The guys from uh, Clyde Henry and Felix and Paul were showing off their new VR project. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Gymnasia is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting to see that kind of how stop motion translates to VR. Yeah. Uh, really fascinating. What's the new VR short? Uh, this is a woman called Frances McKenzie who had done a film for Hot House, which is a sort of emerging talent scheme that the NFB mm. has uh, most years. I'm not sure if it was this year. But like little sort of one-minute films. She did a film called Little Craving, which we have a piece up on Squiggly about. And her thing is it's like it's stop-motion VR, uh, which I think was also the case with the Clyde Henry thing. Yeah, it was uh, stop-motion with a really nice, weird rig that they had going on. Hmm. So this is something that I think, you know, it's going to be quite experimental. I think that they're kind of working through all the sort of like tests and things to find something that will really work. But it looks good. It looks interesting. Like from the, just the test footage, it looks like a, a lot of fun. While we're uh, talking about the NFB, do you want to say indefatigable to uh, Michael Fukushima? Oh yeah. <laughs> and we caught up with Michael. Oh, something we should talk about actually, what he's been working on. Uh, yeah. Michael and uh, that word. Yeah. Have you noticed he's been saying it a lot himself? He, well, he, he, when I saw him at Annecy, he, he made a beeline and, and that's, the thing that you wanted to talk about. Funny people that like, call me out on using words like that, and then they like start using them jokingly, and then they just start using them. Yeah, words are fun. I people <laughs> like language. <laughs> what could I say? Indefatigable. <laughs> Not to be a pseudo intellectual snob, but just because I like the a. Sometimes words mean more specific things, and b. Sometimes it's just more fun to say. Mm. But people who f***ing love saying words just for the sake of saying them, academic conference audiences. <laughs> and this is the difference. It's like, it's the arbitrary usage. Just saying it because you're in this context and, you know, you feel like you need to. One woman, she was using these words and confusing the meaning of what she was saying. And the whole point of using more specific words, like indefatigable, is that they have a kind of specific meaning. Mm. There are certain academic writers who f***ing love using words for the sake of using words. And I hope I, I, I hope people 
can find my book readable. I tried not to do it too much in mine. Because I also know that if you if you read something in every other word you don't know, it's it's not enjoyable to read. Yeah. But if you read something where every once in a while you learn a, a new word, that's quite good. Yeah. It's an interesting one because as you're talking about academic writers, I know, you know, you don't do a PhD without bloody sifting through some shit. The problem is if there's so much great information there, but if you can't get to the information because you have to, because it's like wading through treacle, trying to get through all these kind of words to make the person sound clever. It's not, it's not, it's what the person's saying. It's not how they say it mm. that should be the clever thing. Yes, it's nice to have some kind of, you know, furnishing around it. You're right. Uh, and your book doesn't suffer from that at all. But, um, oh, you. Oh, me. Uh, <laughs> but the, the problem with, with a lot of animation academia is that, it's supposed to be elevating animation, but if you make don't make it accessible, then you run a real risk of of alienating the audience. Mm-hmm. Alienating's a big word. That's my big word of the day. Also, some people don't have anything that valuable to say once you've sifted through all the words. Yeah, uh, the couple of books I I had no problem whatsoever with giving away as squiggly quiz prizes <laughs> because I made my way through them and I'm like, this person didn't really have anything valuable to say you know Hmm. they were saying very banal things and making very frequently observed observations and drawing many previously concluded conclusions that you would have read about in say a jerry beck book and it not felt like a homework assignment yeah so that's i think more my kind of issue is is it doesn't actually contribute to the furtherance of knowledge it contributes to the furtherance of perhaps their reputation among people who confuse that use of language with legitimate intellectualism. Yeah. For the most part, I have to say, the people at the conference were pretty bright, <laughs> you know, you would hope. There were a couple of people who I felt were a little out of their depth. What I find fascinating about the audience and panelist interaction, because a lot of the people who were in the audience were also talking, so they were part of the same world in that sense. But it was something I've I've seen before at like literature festivals or like film screenings where the director's in attendance and there's a Q&A afterwards. It's that people, they get up for the Q&A bit, but they don't have a question. They've gotten up so they can tell everyone in the audience what they think about something or some research they've done. And then they kind of like, they'll talk about that for like a solid minute and then they'll wrap it up at the end into a question that has nothing to do with them just talking about themselves and kind of like making themselves part of the panel. Yeah. That happened all the time. This isn't a question, it's more of a statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, did you read the wonderful Vice article about The Simpsons? Which one? A couple of days ago, probably about a week ago when this episode goes out by a young lady called Nicole Clark. I watched The Simpsons for the first time ever and I couldn't stand it. Ah, right, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've not read the article, but um, go on, give us the... Uh... I can give you the cliff notes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I kind of feel bad, because clearly this person's been set up like Samantha Brick right. to write an article that will just have everyone slamming her on Twitter. And it's basically like, you know, I guess she's a, a millennial who has managed to miss ever seeing an episode of The Simpsons, which I'm, I actually don't think is, is that far-fetched. I've ne- I don't think I've seen a full episode of Seinfeld. Okay. No, that's not true. I've seen about two. Yeah. For all the time I spent in, you know, North America, that would have been quite a hard thing to do. Mm. But I think also, like, 
I know enough about Seinfeld that if I watched it and found the characters to be really idiosyncratic and flawed, which I, is sort of the point of Seinfeld, writing an article about them being hateable characters would be kind of pointless. So anyway, her point is that Homer's a man-child and a bit of a self-involved jerk. And how could anyone possibly like it? <laughs> like, what, if you showed this person any footage of Alf Garnet, <laughs> their head would explode. That could be it. And I'm, I, I'm completely on board. We talked a few episodes ago about the Simpsons in hindsight having areas that are what the youth would call problematic. Yeah. I have no problem whatsoever with admitting, yep, sure. 30 years, of course, is going to be stuff. You know, the old ones, they spank the kids. You wouldn't be able to put that in a cartoon now on TV. Mm. There was something interesting, like she, and the interesting thing is she's given, I think, 10 episodes to watch. And you're like, okay, well, if it's like 10 episodes out of the 30 seasons, seven of them are going to be not that great. If it's like an evenly distributed, they're all within the first six or seven seasons, I think. So they're like the good ones to old people like me. That's, I think, why the Twitterverse's jaw collectively dropped. Yeah. And they're like, this woman's a witch! Burn her! <laughs> I remember one time I was dating a girl who watched The Simpsons, but as it was coming out on TV, so the newer ones didn't think it was very funny, and uh, hadn't really watched the old ones when she was growing up. So like, oh, well, dude, I gotta show you what the show used to be like. I showed this woman an episode from season four. Season four, Stephen. The golden season. That's the vintage ripeness. Yeah. They're still drawn a little funny, but it's pretty funny. You're not going to find a duffer in that year. First of all, she laughed her ass off the whole 20 minutes of the show. But then when the episode ended, and I was like, see what I mean? Like, it was different, huh? And she's like, no, that that was about the same. <laughs> and then she wouldn't admit that she found it funny. <laughs> like, she had to stick to her guns. That's one of my true failings, I think. Which episode <laughs> did you show her? I believe it was the one... I remember the, the big laugh that she, she gave was Homer jumps out of the sewer after being bitten by the radioactive bee. And he goes, the bee bit my bottom. Now my bottom's big. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. That f***ing floored her. As well it should have. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's finely honed. <laughs> Actually, maybe some of this was nostalgia, come to think of it. But anyway. <laughs> Smithers put us in charge of the bee. <laughs> I think it's the one where he ends up going to college. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that's a good one. It's a very good one. Anyway, she actually, this woman writing the article makes a, a quite good point. One of the episodes is the Frank Grimes episode, and she compares herself to Frank Grimes, because <laughs> everyone loves Homer except her. Yeah. Her, her reasons are fascinating. Like, the, the things that she lists as being, like, so despicable. And I don't really have a sort of huge opinion either way of, like, because obviously this was designed as clickbait. But it was kind of interesting, like some of the stuff she sort of laid out, just how really very personally she took anything that fell upon Marge, mm. any time she was ignored or any time she wasn't treated nicely. All of these examples, definitely, you, you knew at the time, and I, I think most people would know watching it for the first time, he mansplained obnoxiously. You know the intention. Yeah. You know that the point isn't that it's funny that a woman's sad. It's a jigsaw piece in this whole other big picture. This is the, the part that I'll, I will read, because this, I think, kind of sums it all up. It's also worth noting the treatment of our poo and Asian characters more broadly contributed to my distaste. 
again, the Apu thing is a thing you and me talked about quite a bit. It's been the main thing, I think, on people's lips recently about The Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, back to her thing. Just one example. When Homer questions his religion in Homer the Heretic, he says it's okay to be Christian or Jewish or, as he points at Apu's Ganesh Shrine, whatever that is, that sort of othering feels very personal. End quote. Which is odd that it would feel so personal because the scene she described literally doesn't exist. That doesn't happen in the episode. What she's done to make her point is she's combined two separate scenes and had Homer say the dialogue that he doesn't actually say. It's Reverend Lovejoy at the end of the episode talks about people from different religions coming together, be they Christian or Jewish or, and then he sees Apu, doesn't know where Apu's from and goes, um, miscellaneous? The joke is on Reverend Lovejoy. Yeah. And so that completely cements that back then, 25 years ago, where they were coming from with a joke like that was, it wasn't a joke about Hindus in America. It was a joke about people in Western religions who were blind to the cultural diversity around them. And it's more of a joke because it's coming from a reverend. He should be more enlightened about other religions. I mean, you know, it gets less funny the more I dissect it. (laughs) (laughs) obviously there is an earlier scene where homer makes fun of the ganesh shrine and then apu gets mad at him if she just cited that scene that would have made more sense it probably would have been enough but it was odd that to make more of a point she not only had to miscontextualize the scene but Mm. misquote it misattribute it to the wrong character and also combine it with another scene I think that's what sub-editors should be for, if you're a quite popular uh, online magazine. I mean, we don't have those, but we don't have Vice's numbers either. So No. We're just, we just rely on mostly being right, and then if someone says, ah, you got that wrong, we're like, okay. <laughs> like, that's as bad as it gets for yeah, us. Don't tell anyone else. <laughs> the jig is up. We'll edit it. She also says here, this isn't particularly surprising, I have never enjoyed sitcoms. <laughs> there you go. Like, I, I actually, you know, I don't really, I have a problem with her. She can like what she, like. I mean, I, I don't like most of The Simpsons. Mm. The point is, I guess, that she's kind of like, she's she's going against the good Simpsons, and that's when I'm like, no, f*** that. <laughs> uh, I'm also sure that plenty of people would watch, you know, what I consider to be the hilarious era of The Simpsons or other hilarious shows of the time, like Father Ted or whatever, and watch it completely stone-faced, because, of course, comedy is such a different thing now. Yeah. So I don't really have an issue with the article itself. You know, I found it interesting, I guess, but I did find that one instance kind of summed up how she was interpreting things, that kind of summed it up, because it was going through a filter and being remade before being put into words, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like when you watch like a film that you loved as a kid, as an adult, and you get all the jokes for different reasons. Like, all the stuff that made you laugh as a kid, you either misunderstood, or it was just stuff that wasn't even meant to be jokes necessarily, or they were just the really weak, lame jokes and the really kind of, like, in-depth jokes you didn't get until you were older. Well, there you go. I mean, when we were kids watching The Simpsons, Bart was the most hilarious thing ever, and it was all about Bart and everything. And as you grow up, as as, as Matt Groening said, you know, mm. you find yourself relating more to... Homer into the other characters. So this writer, as a as an adult, is watching it, and she's concentrating on the adult relationships and 
really questioning them. Yeah. Oh, this is one, one more before we, we, we move on. This is another one of her notes on Marge being mistreated. In Homer Badman, when Homer goes to a candy convention, Marge is his candy mule. Fun. That was fun. It was amazing. That was a fun sequence of yeah. scenarios in the candy convention when she's got the big jacket on. It's not exactly the fucking Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, when he puts the pop rocks in the fizz cola, throws it in the thing and it explodes. It's amazing. <laughs> See you in hell, candy boys. Love it. Me and Ed Raymond rewound that scene 50 times. We thought it was so funny. Marge <laughs> waddling along to keep up. Yeah. It was fantastic. Anyway. She clearly just needs to see the Land of Chocolate episode and everything will be set right. You know, there's plenty of The Simpsons episodes she needs to watch. So there you go. Academia and cultural critique <laughs> about. <laughs> and we're back. Back to the present. Unless you're listening to this in the future, which you will be because any moment after this is going to be the future. Uh, so we are still in the past we're slightly less in the past. We're trapped in the past. My God. This conversation is forever trapped in this moment then. But luckily it's been recorded, but there's nothing we can do about it. That's what people don't realize about podcasts, is that the voices you hear are actually metaphysically trapped within the podcast. Yeah. So whenever you stop listening to them, we're just walking around this blank, Black Mirror-esque environment. <laughs> wild-eyed, hair bedraggled. Complaining about cartoons. Exactly. It's a hell of a life. <laughs> So sleep well, everyone. On the Annecy note, uh, one of the Annecy Crystal winners, was it a Crystal or Audience Award or was it uh, Audience Crystal? Why, yes, Ben, it won the Jury Award. Right on. Yeah. This was uh, from Good Weekends. By uh, Trevor Jimenez, uh, who's got rather the uh, enviable day job working, uh, as he did at Pixar, as a story artist. And he's uh, took time off to make a, a short film. Uh, and I think we're the world's a little bit richer because he did because it's such a such a beautiful film. Uh, have you seen it, Ben? Uh, yes, I have. It's good. I liked the two music choices. Mm. It was interesting. You don't really see it that often, like actual songs in short films, like really well established pop songs. Well, in uh, short films, especially, you're right because there's I don't know if there's rights issues or anything like that, but absolutely pitch perfect in this film. The perfect mm. for just to, to stick it in the uh, the audience in that place uh, to uh, take them back to that kind of. I mean, we were talking about childhood earlier on, really a little bit, mm. um, and I think that's what this film does so well. I'm quite lucky I don't come from this kind of like broken family, but it's kept this this nostalgic approach, this kind of this wonder, this childlike wonder throughout the film. Uh, and so you, know, you can absolutely tell why it won. You know, it's a it's a cracking film. So you actually got to uh, to meet with the director while you were over there. Yes, yeah. Uh, as we see, yeah. So Trevor um, Jimenez, when he's uh, not busy winning uh, the Audience Award and the Jury Award at, uh, at Annecy, uh, he created a uh, I think his student film uh, was Key Lime Pie. I don't know if you remember that one. It's the one with the the Grim Reaper and the guy who's uh, it's a black and white film, um, and the guy's absolutely craving this pie, but the Grim Reaper turns up. Kind of Hitchcockian. It's it's more noir. It's more you know that kind of thing. It's key lime pie. Um, it's uh, it's a cracking film. Uh, really, really good film. But uh, yeah, he's, he's worked in TV. 
uh, as a writer. He's worked on the art department. Uh, features he's done include um, Ice Age, Rio. Uh, he's worked on Finding Dory and Coco recently um, as a storyboard artist. Uh, he's also uh, worked on We Bear Bears as well. I'm busy fellow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he says in the interview how he, how he took a year off to make Weekends, uh, which, is, uh, which is great. I don't know, what, what did you like about the film, Ben? I liked the dynamic of one environment versus the other, the kind of stillness of the mother's house and that kind of excitement of the father's house. and Very effective at telling a story through what you don't see, which is it's a tricky device. But things like the mother's relationship with the new man, you get a lot more from piecing together things that you sort of see, but not so much. You're not having these, the whole relationship play out. You're just kind of getting these snapshots and a story kind of forms between at each point. Mm. Uh, I thought that was great. Uh, I loved the kind of weird anxiety dreams the kid would have about this new sort of interloper in his space. That was a really nice sort of visual concept. Sort of absurd, I guess, but still kind of like uh, creepy. The way it looks as well. I mean, we've not even talked about its style. It's it's it is a gorgeous looking film uh just perfectly crafted it's uh uh nice such nice to see a uh, a 2d film presented with such uh care and uh you're not looking at it and it's not like the software takes over if you know what i mean because there's a lot of uh, 2d films where people look at it and they go oh how did you do that? What software did you use? I don't. I don't really. That's not the first question that pops into my mind. I just love the way it looks. You know, whenever I'm asking that question in an interview, I've reached the point where I'm like, "Eh, I'm spinning my wheels here." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say TV paint is good? <laughs> yeah. What software do you use? As if if I used software, I could do exactly the same thing as you. I mean, it had a kind of like low frame rate. Mm. as far as like the actual movement of the animation but it was the perfect rendering style to do that yeah and what they i mean what trevor like absolutely has and maybe because it reminds me a little bit of how they use that low frame rate thing with the dam keeper to quite good effect and maybe there's something from working at that studio where you kind of like get more of a sense of impactful timing instilled in you Mm. like as long as you get the timing right in the movement and stuff like that whether it's something very elaborate like you know someone running dramatically or just you know something playful the mother's doing in the kitchen or just the way you know the father and the son are eating snacks and drinking drinks on the sofa while they watch tv you know it has that kind of like animatic quality to it almost but this is perfect it's actually it reminds me going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Those all of those old '80s shows had this kind of frame rate. I think it's sort of like six to ten frames a second, depending on what the scene demands. And the difference is like that makes a lot of those old episodes of those TV shows unwatchable because they suffer from very poor direction, very poor blocking. At times, the layout. I mean, I only really remember stuff like Ghostbusters, clearly, but the layout was usually pretty good, but then the characters would just kind of waddle around in the space, Mm. and it would be like they were sort of floating, 
and they wouldn't move in a way that complemented the voice acting or what emotion the character was going through, because probably there just wasn't enough time. This is clearly like a lot of thought has gone into just what is going through each character's head, how much they can say without speaking. You know, it just makes so much of a difference. I'm sure to some people, like they'd acknowledge on some level, oh, I'm watching something more polished or better or more from a, a more skilled set of hands, but maybe wouldn't be able to articulate why. I think my theory as to why that would be would be a lot just how much consideration actually went into what lives these characters are living and what they're thinking in any given moment and what their motives are for every movement, that kind of thing. Mm. The The short version is I liked it. <laughs> and uh, well-deserved jury award. Uh, the film is going to be playing also at uh, Anima Mundi this coming week. Anima Mundi is uh, the Brazilian festival that takes place in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. So for all our uh, Brazilian listeners, or I know some people are heading over there. Yeah. So um, if you want to check it out, or if you didn't catch it in Annecy, it's definitely worth uh, putting in your schedules. So until then, shall we hear from Trevor Jimenez? Let's. Trevor Jimenez, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. You're here in Annecy with uh, a, a brand new film, Weekends. Um, how are you finding France? Um, it's great here. I feel honored to be part of the festival and um, just being in this beautiful place, watching my film with people. It's awesome. Is, is there something to the to that experience that uh, that two o'clock in Annecy, having your film in competition uh, and having it screened first before every every, every other uh, one of them, and having to stand up and listening to the audience? I mean, is it nerve wracking? Yeah, yeah. I've been in festivals for about ten months now, so I've been to a few of them, but I'm still getting nervous before, especially with the crowd this big and it's Annecy, so feels like a big deal. Um, but yeah, it was amazing watching it yesterday with everybody, and uh, the crowd felt really uh, kind of like alive and reactive to stuff with all the films. So it was a really great thing to be a part of. Yeah, um, you uh, you graduated uh, ten years ago with the film Key Lime Pie. Uh, did that also make it to Annecy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played in Annecy ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. two thousand seven. Have you found the uh, ability to make short films after being a student? Has it been, uh, <laughs> your I face haven't. has changed there, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, been 10 years, so yeah. I've been working in the industry as a story artist at uh, different studios, so mm -hmm. I'm at Pixar right now, and um, yeah, I took a year off to make this, and it's the first film of my own I've done in 10 years since my student film, mm -hmm. so it's a big deal for me. Yeah. Is, is that an important part of your own creative process to, to actually take a step back from from the uh, the day-to-day -day drawing for someone else um, and to create something with a personal voice? Yeah, it's been really big for me and it's something I, I appreciated and really enjoyed. And, and this film particularly is something I've wanted to do for a really long time. So I, I had the idea maybe nine or ten years ago, right after my student film, but then just kind of got caught up with work and it was hard to find time to make it, mm -hmm. but finally did. Fantastic. Well, the film we're talking about is Weekends, um, uh, and uh, I dare say, is it a, a semi-autobiographical film? Uh, yeah, it's based on a lot of personal stuff from my own childhood. I grew up with divorced parents, and a lot of it's drawing from that, that feeling of when I was a kid, um, trying to kind of understand the situation, what was happening. Um, my parents divorced when I was two, so... A lot of it was um, kind of strange, not so much sad to me, but just confusing. Uh, so I really wanted to capture that perspective in this film, just kind of putting the audience in the kids' shoes, learning things um, after they've happened, usually. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, um, and that's something that was quite striking about the film is that it, it doesn't it doesn't dumb anything down for the audience. You are placed in that kind of uh, there's a lack of understanding from the the child's point of view from this kind of uh, but it's it's only scary where it needs to be scary. But there's a lot of love and there's a lot of there's almost a security whichever parent the the child's with. Yeah. Um, and something which I found remarkable about the film is that the neither parent, uh, as is often the case with films about divorce, uh, is a is a villain. There's security and love with each um, with, with each area, and each area has its own differences. Uh, you've got this father who's this um, uh, smack bang in the 80s. He's living his uh, I, I I don't know how old the dad's supposed to be, but he's kind of like midlife crisis bachelor kind of uh, existence. Uh, and you've got the mum just trying to make ends meet and, and keeping the the house together. Um, and those two perspectives are are, are just a, it's a pleasure being in each of those perspectives in the film. Um, but then there's the understanding of the child, there's the, 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 the wonderful dream sequences and, and, uh, and things like that. I mean, uh, what, what came first with this film? Oh, uh, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do, not have a film that judged either parent. It's hard to like, kind of come up with that, like the human versions of them, so I appreciate that. Um, I think that actually the first thing was the, uh, the Money for Nothing song. Uh, I just my dad listened to that album on our drives between homes and um, it's just something that ties me back to my childhood and kind of grounds the film in the 80s and uh, yeah it started with like the antiques and that song and the kind of weird juxtaposition of those things um, and then I didn't want dialogue in the film early on and I just thought that uh, we kind of experienced childhood in a surreal way. So that surreal element was there early on as well. So experiencing things in dreams and weird things kind of happening, even in the real life part of the story. Yeah. Um, I must say, I've had dire straits in my head since. I've had money for nothing uh, going yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 It's a pretty good choice from, uh, from dire straits, I would say. It's, uh, it's a good one Thanks, <laughs> to man. have stuck in your head. It's very 80s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, are, you, are your parents still around? Are they still in the film? Yeah, yeah, they're still, uh, they're still alive. And um, my mom's seen pretty much every version of the film. Uh, and uh, I think it's emotional, kind of strange for her to watch it. I think for both of them, honestly. But um, I think they both uh, kind of respect the perspective on it, and maybe it's even interesting for them to watch. Yeah. Is your dad happy with how cool he looks? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can't really tell with him sometimes, but I, I think so. I tried to make him look okay, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, I suppose you, in the, the mother character wears a neck brace. Is that, is that something to yeah. uh, project something onto that character? It was just a way for me to show a character that's kind of fragile. Um, in my head, there's a backstory where she's been in a lot of like car accidents or you know hurt herself, and where's that? And for me, it's just a visual symbol of fragility. Yeah, yeah excellent. Um, so uh, the design of the film, the look of the film, is that something that you had a, a big hand in yourself, the illustrated look? Uh, Initially, yeah, I mean, I did the character designs, but after I had done my animatic, I started working with this artist, Chris Sasaki, who is probably the biggest uh, collaborator with me on the film. And he was a production designer on it. He's an amazing artist. Uh, but he found the whole kind of visual style, uh, which 
Um, he did some paintings at first that didn't depend on me drawing line work. Then eventually found this recipe where he wanted me to draw the backgrounds in charcoal. And then he painted over them and kind of made them look the way they are. Mm-hmm. And then he worked with a whole team of, um, of artists, about seven people, that all kind of matched the style he set. So it's really a credit to him, like how the film looks. Fantastic. There's, uh, it's quite a lovely style. I mean, each, each, you know, you could cut a frame from it and have it in a storybook. It's, it's, uh, it's quite lovely and very controlled as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, the horses are such a nice motif as well. Is that something that uh, you actually had, or is that just a, a security motif for the, for the, for the kid? Yeah, it's uh, something I had in my, <laughs> my room. Uh, my dad had a lot of antiques in his apartment. And uh, I had this red kind of lacquer wood horse in my room, and I've always associated that with that home. Um, and it became kind of uh, a symbol for, um, sorry, a symbol for the kid, uh, his place in the dad's home. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Um, I just think it films a little obsessions with people and, and, and it, it must be quite cathartic to get a, a film finished and, and, and to show it around uh, around festivals. What's next for you? What's what's the next obsession? Um, like beyond this film? Or yeah, do you, do, you have, film? do you have more films to, to make? Oh yeah, I, I have ideas like uh, making my own film. Um, do you want to wait for that? Or? No, it's, uh, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it's an ambulance or bagpipes. It's okay. quite weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, it's a funny sound. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I have ideas I'd like to do, and making my own film has really kind of reinvigorated that passion for making short films. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'd like to find a way in the future to make more shorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, you help it, uh, do you find it helps improve your, the day-to-day job as well? The, uh, the, yeah, yeah, I think they speak to each other, you know, like, I, I love being part of a, a team of really talented people working on big films. Um, there's a pleasure there for me, especially when the project's great and the people are great. And I think that making your own, uh, it satiates your own creative voice. You get to really exercise your own, the things you want to do and see. And then you also develop an empathy for the directors you work with as well. So it's a nice back and forth. And I'm back at Pixar right now and I'm working on another film. And um, yeah, it's it's been a good experience, you know, having my own film and then going back, um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Trevor, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That was Trevor Jimenez talking with Steve at Annecy, and the film Weekends will be screening at Anima Mundi throughout the rest of this month, and you can visit animamundi.com.br for more information about the full lineup at that festival. So thank you, Trevor. Steve, before we get the hell out of here, do you have some uh, new Manchester Animation Festival info for the listeners? Not so much new information. We we want to make sure people are, uh, are submitting their films and people have got until the 27th of July to submit their films. So if you want to submit something to the Industry Excellence Awards or if you want to submit something to the film competition, you can do so for free on the website, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Uh, and if you've not made a film yet for the festival, there's a wonderful opportunity coming up. Say what? Yeah, uh, <laughs> those of you uh, in Bristol already know about Annie Jam. It's the thing that's put on by Encounters and Wonky Films has been going since 2012. What it is, it's a 48-hour film challenge uh, where teams of two to five people uh, battle it out to create a short animated film between 15 seconds and 90 seconds long. And for the first time uh, this year with Anime 18, it's gone nationwide. 
And so uh, Bristol will be hosting a jam on the 27th and 29th. So unfortunately, if you're in Bristol, you've missed out on a chance to uh, sign up for that. However, uh, Manchester, with Manchester Animation Festival, are doing a jam. York, with Aesthetica, short film festival. Derby, with The Quad. Uh, London, with Young Fan. Cardiff, with Chapter. Glasgow, with the Glasgow Short Film Festival and uh, the World of Film Festival. And Belfast, with the Nerve Centre, will be hosting uh, Annie Jam starting on the 10th of August. And that follows right the way through to the 12th of August. Uh, and then on the 17th through to the 19th of August, uh, the Phoenix in Leicester will also be hosting an Annie Jam. And this thing's free to enter. you just got to register, but make sure you get your teams together uh, and create some uh, fantastic short films. The prizes, yes, there are prizes, uh, include distribution from Shorts TV, delegate passes to Encounters. Uh, so it's worth entering for that anyway. Uh, tickets to Manchester Animation Festival and some lovely bespoke trophies created by friends at Animation Toolkit. So yeah, what do you make of that then, Ben? Jamtastic. You just hit the nail on the head, mate. Yeah, I do what I can. <laughs> it's late, I'm sleepy. And you'll be sleepy too after 48 hours of making an animated film. It's all ties together. Well, uh, looking forward to seeing what some of you come up with. Mm. And a couple of quick plugs before we go. Firstly, if you're listening to this podcast when it comes out, you have a week or so left to pick up a copy of my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, with 20% off if you order directly from the publisher, crcpress.com, who are wrapping up their summer sale. In fact, if you buy it with another CRC Press book, you get 25% off. Good gravy, what a deal. Also in the world of my own independent animation, there are a few upcoming screenings, not for my latest film, which right now doesn't have anything scheduled before late August, but for my preceding film, Klimenthrow, first off in Russia, St. Petersburg, to be precise. The film's part of the three-day event Big Cartoon Weekend. It'll be in the screening Borrowed Time. It kicks off at 7pm at the Rodina Cinema, alongside some of my favourite recent shorts, including Britt Reyes' Catherine, Rory Wardby-Tolley's Mr. Medea, and Nicky Lindroth von Barr's The Burden. All of them films we've covered on Squiggly in the past, if you want to learn more. On Friday, August 3rd, following its inclusion in Berlin's British Shorts Festival, it'll screen at the British Shorts Summer Edition, again in Berlin, at the outdoor cinema Freilift Kino Insel. That starts at 9pm. More info at britishshorts.de. Then on the 10th of August at 4pm, it's part of a special retrospective of the best of three years of the London Short Film Festival. This screens at the 11th Lviv International Short Film Festival Wiz Art in the Ukraine. That'll be 4pm. Visit wiz-art.ua for program and venue info. That's all for this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. And Squiggly is on Twitter at Squiggly. Of course, the website is squiggly.com or .co.uk. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Squiggly Animation if you haven't already. And if you have, tell your friends. Until next time, happy animating.
threw away a lot of stuff. Yes. Uh, could you reply to my question with the voice of Edna? Are you going to make... No, <laughs> Edna does not cooperate no, at all. I not. try to get her, I'll talk to you anytime. But Edna just do doesn't and do you press. Don't, you don't want. <laughs> yeah, she shows want. up. I'm telling you, this thing is going to go south really fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's going to insult every single one of you. I can tell you what I think she might say, but but uh, only she can speak for herself. Are you going to make a, an incredible treat? Um, that is just like coming into a maternity ward when somebody has spent two days in labor and saying, how about that next kid, huh? Maybe twins this time. Maybe twins this time. So, uh, I think that's, uh, I'll answer that at some really later date.